Well, thank you, Christopher. Well, this morning we're going to jump right into the Word, and if you're following along in your Bibles with me, you can go to Matthew chapter 7, but let's go to prayer. Father, we just honor your Word right now. We plan on opening your Word this morning, and when we look, we see. Come on, do you believe that this morning? When we look, we see. You know, I don't open the Word to get nothing out of it. I open the word and the Holy Spirit takes hold with me. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do with us. Thank you that you bring things to our remembrance. You show us things to come. You lead us in your paths of peace. You show us how to glorify the Father. And so when we open up the word this morning, we see. And we thank you, Father, for it. That revelation knowledge is flowing. And we honor your word. Because your words are life. And your word also says that they are health to all our flesh. And so this morning, as we open up, I thank you, Father, that bodies are being made right, minds are being made right, things are being settled in our hearts, and we thank you for the power of your word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. You know, if you think about it, if you think little of the Bible, you think little of Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But most people don't realize, John, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the very personification of God's word walking among the people of this earth. And most people see it as Jesus left and went home, but the location change didn't happen that way. It's not like he took off to heaven. Heaven came to you. And so when Jesus ascended on high to sit on the right hand of the Father with God, it's not that they are there and you are here, it's they are here. The entire totality of the kingdom of God crawled inside your skin. With the full power, the full unction, the full authority of God is on the inside of you. And that should make us live different. That should make us look different. That should make us walk different. That should make us talk different because the totality of God has made his home in me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? It's not like you have to go and convince God to come. God's already here. And when we get revelation like that, it will change the way you worship because you're not waiting for an atmosphere. You're releasing an atmosphere. You don't have to have boring prayer times. You don't have to have boring worship times. You don't have to have boring word times. Let the Spirit of God flood out of you and stop looking for external verification that God is here because He's more here every moment of every day than you ever recognize. Well, before we head any further down that rabbit hole, let's get over to Matthew chapter 7. And Matthew chapter 7 is a, is a chapter that is like jammed, filled with a whole bunch of different teaching segments from Jesus. So he's sitting down, there's a bunch of Pharisees there, there's a bunch of his disciples, and he's teaching them these little nugget-sized messages. Now, we don't know, based on the style of writing, whether or not these all happened back-to-back, or if this is a composite of all the different ones that Matthew had heard about Jesus preaching. And so the first one that he hits is this one. Take the log out of your own eye before trying to take the speck out of your friend's eye. 
In other words, if we want to boil it down, fix your own problems before you try and fix everybody else's. Because I think we often look very perfect in our, eye, in our own eyes, and we'd like to pick out the flaws and everyone else. Jesus said, fix your own problem first, and then you'll be able to help your, your neighbor a little bit better. Next one he went into was, don't cast your pearls before swine. Not everybody needs to hear your revelation because they will not value it. You have to follow the Holy Spirit and say what you're supposed to say in that moment. Because a lot of the things that you can be excited about, you're like, oh yeah, that's so awesome. God, I love what I just saw. Others are like, okay, so and what, does that, what happens when you do that and they trample over the pearls of wisdom? It, it hurts your heart. Yeah. So you guard your heart and you tell life and you speak life to those around you, but they don't need to hear your latest revelation all the time. Then he goes into this one. It's a very famous one. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. This is like the cornerstone of our relationship with God. You ask, he does. You seek, you find. You knock, and it's open. Meaning when you approach God and interact with Him, you find what it is you were looking for. And many of us approach the Word and approach prayer as a, well, I'm doing this because I have to, but we really expect nothing out of it. But really, anytime you approach God, God shows up. And He's boiled it down as simple as ask, and you will receive. I love that. Then he goes into this one, which we call the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. And if you really think about it, this has to do with sowing and reaping. Do you want people to do good to you? Do good to others. You want people to love you? Love others. You want to be encouraged? Encourage others. You want others to be joyful around you? Be joyful yourself. We don't need to be reactive of what's going on around us. We get to sell then he goes into, narrow is the way to heaven. And the world doesn't like to hear that. Oh, there's many paths, there's many ways, that's your truth, you know. I think we'll all end up at the same position at the right time when we need to be there. That's not the preaching of Jesus at all. He said, narrow is the way to heaven. And that narrow way is, I am the, tr the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but through me. And then he goes into the next one, which was, you can identify people by their actions. Good trees equal good fruit. And if you're consistently seeing other things than goodness out of people, you have to wonder what root are they pulling from. Then he goes into this one, not everyone who calls me Lord is actually following me. And when we look across Christianity, there's lots of people who call him God, call him Savior, Savior, but don't actually ever receive of the things that he said are available to us. And so after he gets through all those wonderful different messages that could have long sermons in of, the, in of themselves, he ends with this one in verse 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. You know, that could be like a teacher tooting his own horn. I've got the best revelation out there. If you listen to me, you're a wise person. But the thing is, the only one who can legitimately get away with saying that is Jesus. If you listen to what he's teaching, you're going to be a wise person. Like a person who builds their house upon a solid rock. 
And though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise, the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds his house on sand. And when the rains come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. You know, that's always what you want as a teacher. You want everybody to go like, oh, that was great. And Jesus had that moment. Everyone stopped and was like, wow. And it says, for he taught with real authority. Quite unlike the teacher's of religious law. Which tells me they'd heard a lot of teaching, but they'd not heard a lot of teaching like this. And that word authority, you would think it means that he was powerful, that he was strong in the way he came across. But that's not what this word actually means here. It's the Greek word exousia, which means power of choice and the liberty of doing as one pleases. Do you know what they recognized as Jesus was teaching them? He's not doing this because he has to do this. He's doing this because he wants to do this. You know you can tell the difference when people are acting and when they're doing it because they want to. We can all put on the good face we can all be like, oh yeah, God, I know, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. But Jesus stepped up to the plate that day because he wanted to. Because he saw the value in it. I love that. Nobody forced Jesus to do anything. Even right before the cross, he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to his own father, if this cup can pass away, let it. But not my will, Jesus, or God, yours. I choose yours. God didn't tell Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus chose the cross. And God will never make you do anything. But you want to know when the power shows up? When you choose to do it. You know, I like what we say about the Old Testament people. Whenever you see the anointing show up, it's because they got up and went. When did the power come upon Samson? When he stood up after he'd been blinded and he'd been taken captive? When did the power come back? When he got up and put his hands on the pillars. When did the giant fall? When David came out onto the field? And David got on the field and slung the, slow, the stone. When did the Red Sea part? When Moses stepped into the water and stuck out his uh, staff. You want to see the power of God showing up in your life? Get up and get moving. Choose to walk hand in hand with what God has said and you will find the power of God. 
because just as Jesus had the power of choice and the liberty of doing as one pleases, the grace of God has given you the same power of choice. I can walk out the works of Jesus like he said I can do, or I can do nothing. I can show up and see great things happen in my life or I can sit back and not see anything. God has completely put the power of what happens in your life in your hands. Now religion has tried to take that power out of our hands by saying, oh, God is sovereign and he'll only ever do what it is he wants to do. And he's sitting there saying, yes, I said all authority and all power has been given unto me, so you go. And so as they stood there and they listened to Jesus, they recognized that he was doing it because he wants to. Where's your want to? What is it that you want to do? The Bible says that where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. You do what you want to do. Because someone forced against their will is of the same opinion still. You can make someone do something, but only you can open your heart. So if we look in the message translation of that last verse, it says, when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite unlike the contrast to their religious teachers. I love that. He was living what he was saying. You want people to believe what you believe? Let them see you living it. Lay hands on the sick and watch them recover. People will be like, how'd you do that? Walk in blessing because God has given it to you and people will say, how is it that everything you seem to get involved in seems to work out? That's when you get to say, well, he said, whatever I set my hand to do will prosper. When they see it on you, then they begin to believe it. But if we go back to the first verse of that passage and look at it in the message translation, it looks like this. It says, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. They are not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. I love that. They're not homeowner improvements. And so many people treat Jesus and Christianity that way. It's something that I add to what I already do. But that's not the backbone of Christianity. It says they are, everyone say this word with me, foundational words. Words to build a life on. What does it mean to build? There's some assembly required. There's some action involved. Every Christmas we inevitably get toys, generally from one of the sets of grandparents, that says some assembly required. And I find the first step is how do you get it out of that dang blister package? It's like they make that stuff impenetrable. That's what body armor should be made of. Nothing gets through it. You're cutting it with the scissors, and you're like, think you're gaking headway, and then it starts slicing into your hand. You know, you're trying to get those, those little zip ties on, which I don't know what brand of zip ties they use, but they seem to be way more powerful than what you can get in the hardware store. You just can't get the thing off. There is some assembly required in the life that God has given you. Grace has given you opportunities to build a life worth living. But life can happen to you 
or it can happen through you. Because whether or not you choose to engage, life will happen. I'd rather have a say in what happens. So this morning, I want to start a new series with you called Foundation. What are you built on? If we go to the next verse in that passage, it says, if. It starts with an if. Now, I told you last week, just randomly while I was preaching, that if you search through the Bible, you will find a lot of conditional statements. Meaning, if you show up, if you do this, then this will happen. And this passage is no different. It says, if you work these words into your life, which means they will not do it on their own. Though there's many times I've looked at the Lego package and just wanting it to go, build yourself. Now, thankfully, Harrison is awesome at Lego, and he will sit there all day just building and be like this. Bennett's not so much. He, like, he likes to play with the finished product, so it's generally, Dad, build this for me. Your life will not do that. The words of God will not automatically apply themselves to your life. But it says, if you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on the solid rock. The rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit. I love that they had that one in there. But nothing moved the house. It was fixed to the rock. Now, the thing I've found is we don't give much thought to the foundation until there's a problem with it. When we bought our house, uh, it was like over two years ago now, uh, everything looked great from the outside, and we moved all our stuff in, but by week two, I was sitting on the couch, taking a little bit of break of setting things up, and I see Harrison walk by the door, or the window, our big front bay window, with the downspout from our eaves trough. And so I said, hey, hey, and I banged on the window. I said, put it back, and he headed back that direction. Now, dad moment, I should have went out and made sure that it went back where it came from, but I didn't. And so that weekend, we had torrential downpours for like two days straight, and I hadn't been in the basement, and when I came down, I realized, oh, we've got four inches of water in our basement now. We've got foundation problems. So we dug the foundation and we fixed it and haven't had any issues since. But we generally don't give thought to what our life is built upon until we run into a problem with what we've built. And so it's this, it says, the smart carpenter, he builds his life on solid things that don't move. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter. <laughs> and we find a lot of Christianity is in this point. We talk about God. We go to Bible studies about God. We listen to pastors preach about God. But we never actually take those things and apply them into our lives. And Jesus calls us the stupid carpenter. <laughs> I, I thought Eugene Peterson wrote the me message translation. I just think he has a way with words. Cutting through all the BS and just saying, this is how it is. Because we like to pretty failure up. What do they say? You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig? <laughs> he says, if you don't actually use my words, they don't help you. Yeah. 
And so he says he's like the stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach, and when the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Now, I think with a house of cards, the first miracle is that it actually got built. (laughs) Putting all those little things together. You know, you see those people who build those, like, massive ones. I'm like, one little gust of wind and that thing's all gone and you're starting over again. But you might say to me, well, Pastor Jordan, that's not a very good example. What carpenter builds on poor foundation? You ever seen that one before? It's got foundation problems. I like this one. That's got foundation problems. You've got entire apartment buildings that have fallen over. Why? They didn't have the proper foundation. So, what is your foundation? Before we get into answering that question a little bit more, I want to give a piece of wisdom that Paul gave to the Romans. And we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about David. But in Romans 12, 2, it says, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So disclaimer, before we go a little any further, whatever your foundation is, it can change through God. It says, let him transform you by changing you into a new person, by changing how you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. So many people are like, God, what do you want me to do? When you transform your mind, you begin to recognize where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. And then you begin to understand what is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now, I've been involved in a lot of good things in my life that didn't necessarily end up very pleasing. And you can have things that are good and pleasing that don't end up perfect in your life. But God says that as we begin to work with Him, think with Him, walk with Him, and apply His foundation, things begin to line up in all three. But Paul didn't leave his advice there. In the next verse, he says this, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. What is a warning? He's saying, this is what I want you to do, and I don't want you to do this. He's waving the big yellow flag saying, stop, you're going to crash. Go this way. Okay, that's a warning. Here's his warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Let that settle. I say this about being led by the Holy Spirit. Most people aren't led by the Holy Spirit because they're not honest with themselves about what they really want. And so they say, God told me to do this, and you go, no, he didn't. You want to do that. And an honest person will say, here's what I want to do, but I feel God is sending me this way. What's wonderful is when they line up, but that's not 100% of the time. So we need to be honest. Now, as human beings, we are the only creature on this planet given the ability to self-evaluate. Every other creature runs on instinct. They do what they do because they've been programmed to do that. But humans have the ability to stop, and this is an ability that comes straight from God, 
look at the situation and said, I did it this way last time and got this result. Maybe I shouldn't do it that way again. Now, God, please help us do that evaluation more often. <laughs> you know? Anybody ever met a person like that? Just saying, step back and think about what you're about to do. So be honest in your evaluation of yourself. So if we're talking about foundations, psychology tells us that there's three main factors that influence who we are and our decision-making process. Factor number one is our heredity. Stone number one of our foundation, our heredity. When we talk about that, we're meaning what is your family background, what is your culture, and what is your genetics? Well, Pastor Jordan, this doesn't seem that spiritual. Just hold with me, okay? The largest influential factor in your life is generally your family. They shape your first experiences, whether good or whether bad. They often will push you on to do greater things, but they're also, statistically, the largest factor in holding you back from achieving something great. You know, we all tell our children, you can do whatever it is that you want to do, which really isn't true. You can't. God has given you specific skill sets and ability and given you a gift. When you operate outside of that, you're destined for failure. But family often wants you to succeed, but then when you do it, they're kind of jealous. And statistically, they are your main factor that will hold you back. Now, when we talk about culture, we can look at it two different ways. There's the culture that you grew up in ethnically. So here in Canada, we are generally, or in this region of, of Ontario, we are, we are main, mainly white Caucasian people, mostly from an English, Scottish, Irish type background because they're the ones that settled this area. When you get into cities like Toronto and Montreal and stuff like that, you get more ethnic influences. But when you look at it, there is definitely a cultural impact You've raised that way, been raised that way because that's the way the culture looks at it. Now, there's also a second way. This We call it generational culture. How many know that an 80-year-old thinks different than a 15-year-old? And so we have to understand that there's generational culture that is influencing our foundations and our decisions. Right now, in our, in our, uh, our time that we're in, we have about five generations that are at influence. We have what we call the traditionals or the elders. They're the ones that were like World War II and that general section. Then we have their kids, which are the baby boomers. And they make up a large segment of the population because they called it the baby boom for a reason. There was an explosion in population. Then after that, we had the Gen Xers came along. We got people of Pete's generation. And they are a smaller generation, which I, I, I didn't understand that for a while, but I heard a, a generational researcher say this a few months ago. He said that the reason why the Gen Xers are so small is if you look at horror movies, you'll find out what people's fears are. And so immediately after World War II, just, I know you're giving me a weird face, Irina, just think about this. <laughs> what they feared right after World War II was the atomic bomb. 
And so all of their horror movies were about, were about radiation poisoning and mutations because of that. But as that generation began to move on, what began to rise in place in their horror movies was this. Movies like Children of the Corn and Rosemary's Baby. And not even without realizing it, they were culturally afraid of having children. And it was being put into their horror movies. And so we see that that generation is smaller because people weren't valuing having kids as much. They were valuing, you need to get your job. You need to get your ducks in a row. And, and so we see that population is smaller. There was a cultural influence on that not to have as many kids. But then after that, we begin to see the population rise again and we have the dreaded millennial generation that everybody fears. And that's what I belong to. And I've found the more that people talk about millennials, they really have no idea who they are because they talk about all young people as millennials, but you have to understand the oldest millennials are pushing 40. And we now make up one of the largest segments of the working population. And so all these people fearing that the millennials are going to screw up all of our, our economy and everything like that, they've already had the opportunity and it didn't happen. And the last generation we're currently dealing with is what we call Generation Z. And they are 1999 and beyond. And they think differently than all four of the other generations that I've mentioned. They are completely different. They have grown up online. They've never known not having a phone and an iPad and high-speed internet and instant access to information. And things are changing and evolving rapidly with that generational culture. You know, some of the interesting things about them is that compared to millennials and Gen Xers, they are starting to save money at an early age. You wanna know why that is? They were having their formative years around the 2008 economy crash. And they saw their parents have to tighten their belts. So they've learned the value of saving money. Here's something interesting. They don't remember 9-11. They were two, the oldest ones. And so the things that have shaped us, we can all, most people in here, if I ask, where were you on 9-11? You remember. Just like if I ask other generations, where were you when they landed on the moon? You remember. There's cultural markers that the Generation Z does not have that the rest of us do. And so they don't operate the same way. So when we talk about our foundations, we'd like to say that family is the largest influence, but for Generation Z, it's not. The internet is. They spend more time on YouTube than they do with you parents. And if you ask, me parents. <laughs> if you ask Generation Z what they want to be, one in three will tell you they want to be a YouTube blogger. But this forces us to rethink things, even as a church. You want to hear an interesting statistic? A few months ago, an organization I know did, did some research into YouTube and found that half a million people a month Google search, or not YouTube search, how to have a Bible study. You know that in the first 20 pages, there's not a single church with an answer? which tells me we are not keeping up with culture. Now, since that organization...
has said that, there's going, oh, and they're now starting to pop up. But when they said that, I went and I looked through and like, you get like the odd one, like Andrew Womack had one and Kenneth Copeland had one, but then it's just a bunch of young people sitting there with their camera, teaching people how to study the Bible. Where are the churches? This is the impact that culture has on us. Culture shifts every generation. What is your foundation? It might not be the same foundation as the person sitting next to you. But culture was not to me meant to be our main foundation. Now, the second pillar of our foundation is our environment. And when we talk about our environment, we're talking about the home life we grew up in. Some people grew up with two parents. But do you realize that statistically, more people grow up with one in a split family these days than two? They don't have the same family structure that we used to. Things have changed. I saw a, <laughs> a thing, there was uh, parents were fighting and the, parent, the kids were whispering in the background and said, yay, two Christmases. <laughs> but that has become culturally normal. So the way that we grow up with in our home life might not be the same from the person next to you, but it has been a major influence on your life. It's part of your foundation. Did your parents fight a lot? Were they good to you? Were they mean to you? Were they uplifting? Were they degrading? These things all play into how our foundation is laid. Whether, what's our school background? Did we have a good experience in school? Did we have a bad experience? Did we have post-secondary education? These things all play into our foundation. What is, our, what is our work experience? What type of job did we get? What type of job didn't we get? our language, our religion background. Now, when I'm talking about religion, I'm not talking about what we're talking about today. Religion for most people is, my, the region grew up Catholic, so I'm Catholic, but I've never been to church. There's a billion people that tell you they're Christian, but haven't been to church in years. There's a billion people that tell you they're Muslim, but they're not always all practicing. You know, it depends on where you grew up. It's an in factor in. The third pillar of your foundation is situations you've encountered in your life. Now this has to do with, oh, let's go, happy times. Did you have good experiences growing up? Or did you have more, was there divorce in your family? How was there trauma? Was there abuse? These things all factor into what we make our decisions based upon. If you've been hurt, we have what is called the recoil mechanism. You don't want to get hurt again. So when you approach those type of situations, you want to withdraw. These are parts of our programming. Has there been death in your family? Everyone dies eventually, but there's certain people that come from backgrounds where there was tragic situations of death that happened. Those all play in to the factors that make up our foundation. And if we're really being honest, most of our foundations look a little bit more like this. How do you build a life on that? But so many of us try to do it every day. So what do we do? Join me over in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has another story here. 
And he says, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. He dug a pit for pressing out grape juice and built a lookout tower. And then he leased the vineyard to a tenant farmer and he moved to another country. And at the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmer, farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And as I thought about that, I'm like, what's the difference between killing one and stoning one? I thought they achieved the same thing. I digress. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmer saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. And when the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? And the religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Disclaimer, who said that's what the owner would do? The religious people did. You can always definitely find out who has a religious mentality by who they're wanting to condemn. And their answer was quick, just kill the farmers. Do you know what Jesus' response was? Let's give them grace. Let's send them love. So Jesus asked them and said, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now, he's speaking to Jewish people here, not to Christians. He says, and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Basically, Jesus was telling him at this time, God has given you lots of opportunities, Jews. He's now going to open it up to the world. And he says, anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken into pieces. When we find ourselves in resistance to God, we find our lives in broken states. And it says it will crush anything, anyone that it falls on. But when the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling a story against them that they were the wicked farmers, the very ones that they said, why don't you just kill them? And then they realized, wait, he's talking about us. And they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet, which tells us that they did not consider Jesus to be a prophet. But what Jesus said in verse 42, he said, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. A cornerstone is not an addition. It's the first and most important stone. most important one. When they lay a cornerstone, it goes first, it goes level, it goes straight, 
and every other stone that is placed into that building is referenced off the cornerstone. What did Jesus say? These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. But what if the rest of my foundation looks like this? It's been a little broken. It's been a little tattered. It's been a little not right. Well, do you know what Jesus said his mission here on earth was? He got up in the temple in Luke chapter 4 and he begins to quote Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You don't got to be poor no more even though your foundation may have started there. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. Doesn't matter what abuse you came from, God wants to heal your heart. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks. This is not our destiny. He heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. So whatever your hereditary is, your family, your culture, whatever your environment is, your home life, your work life, your education, whatever the situations you are, have gone through in your life, here's what Peter said. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will never be disappointed. When you start with this, this gets better. This gets healed. This has less influence when you start with the thing that's most important. So whatever your foundation has been, let the Word of God reframe it. Maybe you've been watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't started with that foundation stone of Jesus. He never meant for you to go through this life without Him. He was meant for you to build your life off it. And if you're ready right now to give your hearts to Jesus, I would love to pray with you right now. Church, why don't you pray with us? Say, Father, Father we thank you for Jesus. And right now I receive him. I thank you for the gift, the free gift. I receive him without conditions. And I choose to walk with him and let him be my foundation. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, I would love for you to get in con contact with us. We'd love to get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources in your hand. But I want you all to remember, we come from different backgrounds with different values. But Jesus is the one that will get us through. So this week, 
what foundation do you return to? You guys are loved and favored by the Lord. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you all soon.